you know, I know we're on the tail end of this pandemic, but uh, this idea that we're supposed to be our best selves and happy all the time, especially considering the last year, come on. Welcome to Locks in the Bagel, where you'll find some banter-centric, non-linear, emotionally intimate, random tangent-based conversations, just like in real life. Along with my oldest friend in the world, Joshua Beckett, I'm Kenny Benjamin. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash locks in the bagel. Red Fox had a reputation as being by far the dirtiest. Like I they would I don't think they allowed children. When we went to see Shecky Green, and we normally like to sit in the front because I was a kid, I like the front, um, being right under the under the comedian, and they they said Shecky doesn't allow children in the first like ten rows. It basically, the, it wasn't it was tables, not rows, but the equivalent of the first ten rows, because he didn't like to say fuck and shit and cocksucker in front of ten year olds. Apparently, that's some mor- sense of morality I find amusing. And when I was listening to Richard Pryor albums when I was I want to say ten and eleven, perhaps inappropriate at that age for any ten year old to be listening to Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor is just on the top of the mountain. He's on the top. He was of the so funny. I'm not going to do any of the the comedy because it's just too dark and it's it'd just be totally inappropriate. But the the bit he did on The Exorcist, Exorcist. Oh my oh god. My god. So and funny. as a ten year old, I thought that was brilliant. I haven't listened to it in a long time. It probably it's still, still holds up. It's still funny. You know who's funny? Is Roy Wood Jr. He's funny. I don't. I don't know who that is. Is he a golfer? No, but he sounds like a golfer. Now, now on the first tee, Roy Wood Jr. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know who that is. He, he's a comedian. Yeah, an American. Yeah, he's from Alabama. I've noticed the rise of the Southern comedian in the last few years on Netflix, and it worries me a little bit. Everything no, about the South. He's not white. I, I don't. I'm, I'm just saying the Southern. The Southern comedian is a, is a scary phenomenon in America. The white Southern comedian, sure. If Roy Wood Jr. is not white, then probably less scary. But there's a there's a terrifying strain going through America now that has Confederate flags and uh, Nazi symbols on the back of cars that comes out of the south and you know other places too many other places mm-hmm. yeah i'm off on a tangent now i haven't i didn't sleep well last night so no oh, i'm sorry to hear that you went to see the house you had to walk through the house i walked through the house took some measurements uh of the people who live there yeah yeah <laughs> like to, to make them a his, suit <laughs> you know his feet are much bigger than i thought they were. yeah you're like it's like a it's a custom in the modern era of buying houses to make the person you're you bought the house from a suit with your own hands i didn't realize that yeah it's very nice it's i don't very have, nice I don't have much that. time <laughs> that's a funny idea that feels like much too respectful a concept for american culture which i have no faith in whatsoever yeah, we should be closed on on uh, on wednesday yeah where did that language come from we should be closed it feels very it's funny to me i digress i'm gonna drink i'm gonna drink now from an empty cup okay but it's the act of taking the cup and it didn't lifting sound it like up it was empty it sounded like you drank something yeah i'm a good mimic I've been working on my mimicking skills in do the pandemic. I, can you do a flush? Do a flush. I can do it internally. <laughs> so last week, I was reading this article called America's Untenable Happiness Imperative. I'm not so happy. I'm not so keen on the title of the article, but the article I thought was terrific. And it was written by this guy who I actually knew for a while in, in Providence. He's a, he's a terrific writer. He's a terrific guy, by the way. Interesting. And I think he just got a book deal for a book he's been trying to write for like a decade. So that's kind of exciting for a Would writer. Like to share his name? It, yeah, I was about to, if you let me finish. And this, the long introduction, as opposed to interrupting me, as you are wont to do. His name is Philip Isle. I think the Isle is the correct pronunciation. It's E-I-L. He's a Providence-based writer. He's written for many of the papers. And this article is actually in a magazine called The Week, which I, I think it's a British magazine. But it talks about happiness, you know, and this kind of culture of positivity. And, and, and he, he references some quotes from a, a psychologist, a guy named Daniel Horowitz, who's written a book on happiness, um, a very famous book about it that, that kind of deconstructs the history of happiness in this country. You know, I mean, because America was founded with happiness was in one of the founding documents, right? Uh, you're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But Phil, in his article follows that quote with this line, with this sentence, which I love. He says, but at some point, that crucial bit of hedging, I love any writer that uses the word hedging, because I think it's a great word, but that crucial bit of hedging contained in the words, quote, pursuit of, unquote, seemed to dissolve and left us with a culture that views abiding happiness as a birthright. What do you think? True or false? You see, see, this is what you do. It's very sneaky. 
what you do is you do this, you, you, you research, you, you, you spend all this time reading and thinking and coming up yeah. with all these sexy, you know, thoughtful uh, remarks Quotes, about stuff. Yeah. And yeah. And then you're like, what do you think? And I'm like, I have not have any, I, I don't know. Okay, here's the difference between uh, the two of us, and this is this is a fundamental, I think, uh, historical difference. So here's the difference, essential difference. It goes back to our childhood. You like to take in information and then chew it around and think about it for quite a while. You would like to hear something and then maybe take like a, a three day walk and think about it, <laughs> yeah, and then three day walk. That's about right. And then sit down at breakfast on that fourth day and say, you know, I I've had I've time th- to process I've been, I've this. I'm thinking about this. All right, and I will hear something and have an immediate immediate response that can go on for three or four days. Yeah, except that is that the difference. Except, the, except you've had all week to think about this. Well, I can't I can't argue with the fact that I'm more prepared at this than you are. I just can't. There's no arguing then. Well, when you say more prepared, prepared. I, I, well, yeah, yeah, prepared. Yeah, I just got the invite for this thing that says like this is what we're going to talk about. And a week ago, I sent go. you a, a, a week ago, over a week ago, I sent you this article and text. Eight days ago, I sent you an article, this article, and no, a text saying oh, this is what I want to talk about next week. No, you didn't send me that. I did, but can we not go back to that right now because I really want to talk about what we're talking about. So it, there's there's the, the 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 framers hedged on happiness. Is that what you're saying? Well. The, their line is, and the pursuit of happiness. They didn't say life, liberty, and happiness. They said we have a, an inalienable right to life, an inalienable yeah, right to, pursue to liberty, happiness. and the pursuit of happiness. So there's two issues in play here, I would argue. One is we're missing, I think, culturally today, especially this notion of pursuit. And pursuit implies, or doesn't imply, excuse me, it, it, the pursuit is absent a process. It doesn't say, and this is what it, how we will pursue it, and this is how these are the steps you can take to pursue it. It just leaves it very open, which I think is problematic in many ways because there's no framework for for what happiness is, right? And and also here's the thing. Well, let me just make the second point with the quizzical face you're making, which I love, which the audience can't see, but it's always very amusing. It's the that sounds stupid face, but anyway, let me get to the second point. Okay. And the second point, the second point is that is that happiness in an 18th century context written by these particular people in this particular setting, uh, he suggests in the article also, Philip, that means something different than what a 21st century American perspective on happiness means. And that's problematic as well. So go ahead and say what you were going to say. Well, I don't... I, well, there's a lot of stuff Go ahead. Start anywhere. Well, for starters... You have 12 okay. seconds. Go. Yeah, start anywhere. <laughs> 12 seconds. For starters, yeah, everything they said means something different today. So I don't, I don't know where to go with that. You could say that well, you could anything. say you could go to what Clarence Thomas and uh, and the late Justice, what's his name, the conservative icon guy said, Scalia. Yeah, Scalia. That uh, we must read the Constitution exactly as the text suggests, and and not apply any frame to it at all. No context. That's well. That's to me. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, insane. And completely insane. As is this idea that, by the way, that Coney Bear is not is not recusing herself from this <laughs> Coke Brothers thing, which is fucking uh-huh. just making me crazy. What but, did the Pepsi Brothers think of the Coke Brothers? That's what I always wanted yeah. to know. But anyway, I digress. By the way, in the in the drinking in the Locks and the Bagel drinking game, uh, I've said I digress. I think four times already today. So you're on your road to a nice, healthy buzz. Excellent. Um, so what else? The um, I don't know. I'm a little troubled by by this idea of that, but they didn't they didn't say how to pursue happiness or that and that, that, that that's problematic. I mean, they don't say how to do. I mean, in 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 the well, no, I'm saying it's problem. I'm I'm saying it's problem. Philip wasn't saying that. I was saying it's problematic because it creates in the modern world, in the world we live in, it creates again this problem of you don't like sixth grade science. I always go back to if you don't define your terms, then we're all look talking at each other and across each other and and arguing about things that don't make sense because we don't have the same shared sense. Well, of I think we definition. could argue this either way, right? I, on the one hand, it's it's sort of beautifully open-ended because you could say then the the unspoken or tacit part of that statement is pursuit of happiness in whatever way you understand happiness that might be good in an individualistic world but in a in a society that can lead to problems right because if i define happiness by killing every one of my third neighbors that could be a problem for you if you're one of my third neighbor what that is true (laughs) that's what i'm saying like uh, i think a shared a shared understanding 
of a term is helpful in a culture when you're when you're talking about it in terms of a society these are our rights these are our values if you don't have a shared sense of what the value means it's meaningless or it's dangerous don't you think right but this but but life and i mean but you could say the same thing then about liberty i mean which people yeah, have I think now it, obviously I think for it is decades a problem. and decades right. i mean they don't say what and liberty is either yeah and i mean clearly liberty was different for different people for them at the time well, clearly, that's another critique, by the way, of happiness also, and this idea of positive psychology, right? It's outside of the context of race and social justice and, and gender and all these issues that impact our ability to to engage in whatever happiness is, right? Again, these are all like, it's, the, my, it's our problem with basic psych- psychological terms, right? What is depression? Well, it's not a monolithic thing. It's not one thing. Depression can mean different things to different people in different contexts. That's correct. Well, I mean, so, so the problem then for the clinician who is not culturally aware or culturally curious is they can miss people's actual lived experience. And this is the problem in a society when we're throwing, banting about this idea in the culture now of happiness, it's, which is everywhere. I mean, and during the pandemic year, we've just experienced, right, all these, all these articles and all this movement toward, well, find your best self in these troubling times, right? Be your best. Be happy. This is an opportunity. What about being sad? What about being depressed? What about being anxious and 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 the 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 long the implications of being alone for a year that doesn't suggest happiness to me I'm, and my own experience with it doesn't suggest happiness either so tie that into the pursuit of happiness well i want to go this so this daniel horowitz guy right no, the guy no, wrote no, this, no, no hang on hang on tie tie in what you just said to the pursuit of happiness and see, see if you can put these things together because well there you, i'll you, tell you, you why you have an, an inalienable right to pursue happiness how does right. being unhappy in why. the middle of a pandemic tie into I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly how. Because in our culture, this movement of the movement of positive psychology in the last thirty years, and and that the notion of happiness has become sort of like something that is that has been given us by culture to suggest to us this is how we're supposed to be, and if we're not living up to that, there's something wrong with us. If we can't always find happiness even in the darkness, then we're not doing it right. And we feel like, wow, I'm not doing it right because all these articles and all these blogs and Instagram and everybody online is telling me they're living their best lives. They're happy all the time, right? That's insane. Yeah, well, that's insane. And that's one of the, I think, one of the the real um, trap is the first word that came to my mind. It's not exactly Mm -hmm. the word I want of social media. But, you know, the... the, Danger. The framers also didn't, didn't say... You should pursue happiness. They just said you have an inalienable, an inalienable right to do so. Yeah, right. But here's the, here's the thing, right? But, so, but I take your point. I take your point, right? By saying you have an inalienable right to pursue happiness, the idea is you ought to. Like that's a thing that we all ought to right. do. Right. It's a founding value, one could argue, in the document that we define as foundational for who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yes. It's a, I, I like how you said that, that it's a foundational value. Mm-hmm. Right. So then this Daniel Horowitz goes on to describe two different kind, two distinct types of happiness. One he calls hedonic and one he calls eudaimonic. This is a word I've never used before. And so the first kind, the hedonic, obviously is much more about, this is how um, it's described in the article. The first is a kind of short, intense feeling we can get from a piece of chocolate or a back rub or watching our favorite sports team win, right? That's the hedonic, right? Mm -hmm. And then this eudaimonic, which is a word I'm still not comfortable with, but I'm going to say it anyway, is a steadier, more subtle sense of contentment based on work and activities that provide, and here are the key words, purpose, meaning, and satisfaction. So in this context, anyway, you're talking about happiness that derives from meaning and purpose and and values and and not from something that is... uh, uh, you know, sensational. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So our focus, I would argue, recently in particular, and 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 in the Instagram world that we live, in the Kardashian Instagram world that we live, is all on these right sensational moments. These these as consumption based happiness, right? Things we can buy, things we can experience, versus more of a virtue based happiness in being part of something, being connected to something, helping others. Um, the first kind of happiness is, well, I mean, that's what they're talking, that's what the article is talking about, basically. And that's what this Daniel Horowitz is talking about, these two different kinds of happiness that can be taken up to to give us a sense of joy. Well, what I was going to say is, I think that it's, 
it's easy for people like you and me to go to a place of that you just did, which is like, oh, that's what's that's what everybody's talking about, and that's what everybody's doing. And I, I I'm not so sure. I, I bet you could. I think fifty percent of those people are out there pursuing spiritual happiness and, gra- and gratification and taking hikes and trying to, you know, be commune with nature. And, and I don't know that it's all about the hedonic. I don't know that everybody who's on Instagram uh, and social media is out there um, proselytizing about hedonic pleasure. I think there are a lot of people out there who are proselytizing eudaimonic pleasure as well. Yeah, who, name a few. Sanders. Sanders. No, no. (laughs) There are a lot lot of people who are doing that, I'm sure. I I just think it's very easy for, for people like us to to slam all of the social media uh yeah pleasure I think it's easy to proselytizers and I'm just not sure that that's accurate that's all I I'm, I think I'm, I I think it's reasonably accurate um I I by the way you're not really on any of the social media sites at all so you don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge of this like you know you're not on Instagram every day or any day I I was right? I was not on Instagram every day are you on Instagram every day now yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't post every day, but I look. I people I follow and people whose sites I look at every day and people whose stories I watch every day, who post every day. I think that the the general vibe on all these sites now, and I think it is fair to to assess it this way, is that it's a in some ways it's a it's a it's a short term and a false happiness, right? It's a fleeting kind of happiness because, you know, the, again we've talked about this before in social media, but the the people who are very popular, the Kardashians who have hundreds of millions of followers, I mean, their whole lives are about the vacations they take, the food they eat, the clothes they buy, well, and getting people to participate people like in the that. Kardashians, yeah, okay. But I'm talking about the most influential people in our culture. You're, you're, you can't diminish the power of the most influential people, the people who have the most influence. So these are who most people follow. If someone is if someone has 200 million followers, you could argue they have a significant impact on what the values people take up. Uh, there's no question about it. I thought you just meant people in general are on on social media, you know, espousing hedonic pleasure. Well, by, I think people by and large and I'm, I'm, I think that is I was, true. That's what I was I talking think, about. I think well, but I and I but I disagree with you. I mean, I'm not sure you're making a point that you, based in knowledge, but I, I agree that that's what most people on Instagram are doing, and I think it's rooted in that the people they follow are doing that, and that's what they're seeing as meaningful. Because every most people on Instagram want more followers, and so when they follow people with 200 million followers, a lot of them, I would argue most of them, then go on to model their values, their experience around those people because they buy those people's products and they keep watching those people's social media posts. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm also not entirely comfortable with this idea. I mean, again, you know, my knee jerk response is just to agree with you, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I'm, I'm, I just want to be thoughtful that I'm not. And I appreciate your thoughtfulness, not taking up a kind of a knee jerk position here. You know, for example, like, like I, I bristle a little bit, and it feels a little contrary to your general um, ethos. But when you say that's a false happiness, I'm like, who are you to say what's a false happiness or a true happiness? Well, I, I will tell you why I say a false happiness because I think again this relates to therapy. It's a, it's a false might be the wrong word. I would say it's a thin amount. Of, it's a thin view of happiness. It's a view of happiness that is easily pushed aside when something inevitably unhappy happens in somebody's life. Right? It's not a rich definition of happiness, the kind of consumption in social media-based happiness, right? This more um, pursuit of meaning and purpose, something deeper than the sensation of chocolate or sex or liquor, which I enjoy, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those are bad things. I, I think they're meaningful. They're wonderful things. But if your pursuit is always on those things, and then something, you know, inevitably hard or difficult or challenging happens, like a pandemic, one could argue, um, I think your ability to sit in that f- sit feeling of happiness is challenged. And I think you feel worse because then you are feeling like you're not living up to what you're supposed to be living up to, because that's what is everywhere that tells us you're supposed to be happy all the time. 
well, and happy in a certain way. Perhaps. I mean, I, I find what you're saying challenging because who are you to say what's meaningful to somebody? I agree with you. I'm again, like I'm, I'm inclined as a person to go that shallow. If that's what you know that if that's what you think yeah, but, of as meaningful, that mm-hmm. shallow. But no, I get it. But but I don't. If a client came into you, you just you just brought up therapy. Yeah, yeah. If a client came into you and you know you asked them, is that meaningful to you? And they said, yeah. Are you going to go? Well, but that's a pretty thin idea of meaning. That's a pretty. That's not very meaningful, really. Let's let's you know unearth that. You'd say, why? Well, tell me what's important about that to you. And if they could share mm. what's important about those things yeah. to you, would you challenge that? Um, I wouldn't necessarily. Cha- no, I wouldn't challenge the fact that they find those things meaningful. As I just said, I find those things meaningful. But I might challenge the idea when they come back after something bad has happened to them, and they they're feeling inadequate because they're not living up to that idea of happiness that they told me two weeks ago is the thing that makes them happy, and they're not feeling that's accessible in that moment. I might challenge the idea of how they define happiness is not really helping them or not serving them in a in a long term way in a way they want it to serve them. Yeah, if so, that client came back and said that to you. What but, that's, about, but that's been my experience almost universally with people, not just clients, just people. Is, is that, that Has that been your personal experience as well, on, uh, to, that you yeah. have also pursued thin meanings of happiness? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the Band-Aid happiness that I put, that I use food as throughout the course of my life that I learned as a child never is never satisfying enough and, and, and never... And especially not satisfying in, satisfying in times of intense struggle, it, it's it's a band aid, and it goes away. But a deeper relationship or a deeper uh, sense of purpose or working with helping kids or you know the things that I find in my experience that are that are richer and feel more of like something of a virtue and a purpose, um, those things survive struggle. Those things exist even as you're feeling bad. I think that's a, just a stronger place to stand when in that, when life comes at you negatively, which it does to everybody. Okay, well, That's I mean, my I just, experience. I just feel like we're, we're, we're mixing apples and rutabagas a little bit, because I know in your own personal history, you have been engaged with things that were incredibly meaningful, and you were also extremely unhappy. Well, hmm, yes and no. I mean, I was less on... I don't know that that's actually accurate. I think... In the times that I've been doing meaningful work or felt like I was involved in a meaningful relationship, I was less unhappy than the times when I wasn't doing those things and similar things happened to me. Less unhappy is not the same as happy. Oh, I think, but I think the point is, is that it's, it's a scale. It's, it's, a, it's a sliding scale. So I think it is this, I mean, I think it's the meaningful measurement is is not to say happy or not happy. That's an artificial well, well, either or well, that's kind a of very, thing. Well, that's a very Freudian idea. I mean, I, I love this thing that he said. It's basically like, oh, our jobs is basically to take people from abject misery to normal human unhappiness, which is basically what you're saying. It's like, well, if you're engaged in meaning, then you'll just be normally unhappy as opposed to just abjectly miserable. I think there are varying degrees of all of these things. And I think that the suggest the problem we get into as as people is when we think there's one or the other. It's like I'm either happy or I'm not happy. And then when I'm not happy, everything else falls apart. That's problematic because I don't think it's helpful. And I also don't think it's true because, you know, when you get a client who comes into therapy and says, like, every for the most part, there are very few exceptions. There are exceptions. And I had one client like this in the years I did therapy, one client. But Almost 99.9% of the people, when they come into therapy and say, every single thing in my life is bad, I'm, I'm, my life is horrible, there's nothing good in it. When you ask them some questions, you will find at least one kernel of something good. Almost 100, almost 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is that, do, you, do you find that accurate? Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. So, I mean, so this is the thing that we're taught, again, we're taught to, to, to binary it. We're taught to, like, I'm either happy or everything sucks. I mean, that's a problem. If we don't move to a, a more scaled version or a more like both and, like I can hold, like you said, in my life, I've been very unhappy at different times, but not completely unhappy at times when I've been, fe- when I felt meaningful, even though I was also unhappy. Like I can hold both those states at the same time. Yeah, and being and being engaged in something meaningful while other everything else is falling apart is the thing that keeps you from dying. Well, I, you know? well, I think that's true. I think that's true. But again, 
I feel like that's a different conversation than this idea I don't. Of, of, well, I, I, I agree. Meaning changes everything for most people. If you, if you can find something to, that is meaningful to you and participate uh, in that uh, or engage in that, right? I mean, that would have been, to me, a really a much better uh, way of, for the framers to put it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning. That would have been fantastic. My point is, is that's that is what they did because happiness. Then this reminds me of you, did, you probably didn't see the Da Vinci Code, the Tom Hanks movie. Love that movie. I've seen it like twelve times. Are you joking? You're serious right now. I can't tell. No, I'm, I'm totally joking. I would never. Okay, watch I knew the that. Code. And you have, okay, okay. You're not a Tom Hanks fan. Fine, I get. I that. like. I, I, that's actually not true. I'm. A, I know. I that's Tom why Hanks. I said it. Okay, let me just say that Tom Hanks is terrific in The Da Vinci Code. And wherever you think of Da Vinci Code, it's a great cable movie. It's the kind of movie that can come on anytime or in, in today's world at Netflix. You can go back and watch any scene that you love in that movie. There are a number of scenes I love in that movie. One of the moments I like in that movie, because it's, it proves exactly what we're suggesting here when I just suggested to you, is the language, how language is so important to understand the nuance and the context in, the, in time. Because what the framers meant when they said happiness then I would argue, and I think a couple people in this article are arguing, and a lot of people would argue, is they meant meaning. They didn't mean, you know, a bite of chocolate or a blowjob in the bathroom or going to a movie you liked. They meant meaning. Um, there's a great scene in, in, well, some might not think it's great. I think it's great. In Da Vinci Code, where they're talking about Jesus and, and Mary Magdalene, and Ian McKellen, an actor I think we can both agree is pretty amazing, mm -hmm. Ian McKellen is, is showing a picture of the Last Supper painting, and he's explaining to the, the French actress, whose name I can't remember, who I also think is a terrific actress, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, who starred in that movie. He's explaining to her, he's reading from a gospel, because he told her that Mary Magdalene was Jesus' wife. That's one of the sort of, in the Da Vinci Code, it's one of the, the conflicts and the ideas and the struggles is that they believe that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married. And so he reads from this gospel and that, that I think Mary Magdalene, or that Peter wrote or somebody, and he said, and the gospel, the language says, and he walked with his companion. And Tom, and they cut to Tom Hanks, and he's like, gives one of those like uh, acknowledgement sighs. And she says, but that says nothing about him being married. And he says, well, and then Tom Hanks' character says, in those days, companion literally meant wife. Right, So when we don't understand the language or when we try to apply the modern filter, the modern definition of something, we get screwed. And because and we live in a culture, as you and I both know, that doesn't have a lot of patience for nuance or deep, complex thoughts in public context. The pursuit of happiness meant something was based, based more of like an Aristotelian virtue, not based on like instant gratification as we take it to mean now. So you think that is what they meant? Okay. Yeah. I think that actually is what they meant. Well, I, I, buy I think that. they were... I buy that. And so I think we, it's a misreading, like so many things, like the gun ownership, you know, well-regulated militia. That seemed pretty clear. But anyway, that's a different conversation. Yeah, that's another infuriating aspect of modern culture. Let's have more guns. Let's be the country in the world that has the most guns and, by way, correlates the most gun violence. Yeah. And we How have, do we by, cut by, down we on gun well well-regulated militia. It's called the United States Armed Forces. Yeah, you but in are the 18th not part century, of any regulated militia. Right. And again, in the 18th century, those things meant different things. And the value of having guns for individual citizens meant something very different than it does in the 21st century. But try and explain that to somebody who's not interested in actually a real conversation about this, and you get America. Yeah, I just think that's interesting. I, I, and I'm so, also so, curious. So, wait, so, so, let me, so let me check. Yeah, please. So check in with you then about your own, about your checking, own experiences. Checking. You checking, checking the nose. Uh, you talked about the pandemic. I mean, I know the pandemic's been really, really hard for you. Mm -hmm. Have you pursued, have you pursued meaning in the midst of the pandemic? Not so much, no. I've been trying to survive the pandemic more than pursue, being able to pursue meaning. I mean, the, the first six months of the pandemic where we really had no idea what was going on and we were all told to basically stay home all the time, not, you could argue the first 10 months, you know, that's a long time to just stay home. And so when when you don't have family near you, when you don't have people who are close near you, my fear of getting sick was profound because like who, nobody would be here to take care of me. Um, so that was one of the fears that I held that, you know, people like you probably and others who were near the people they loved or the people they cared about probably had less of that fear. That's a, that's a profound fear. That's hard to explain to people who have no context for it. It's like hard to explain to somebody not having enough money for food 
when somebody's never had that experience and thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's a hundred bucks. And like to somebody who doesn't have money, a hundred bucks might as well be a million dollars. Because if there's no way to get it, there's no way to get it. So my fear of getting sick, it's analogous, I think, to that. My fear of getting sick because I was alone was, you know, exponentially greater. Okay, but did that which, stop you from pursuing meaning? Yeah, this is my point. This is what I'm trying to explain to you, which I think it's hard for you to understand. When you feel that alone and that scared, it's very hard to activate like create the creative parts of yourself or the joyful parts of yourself because the fear and the isolation is is more powerful and kind of shuts you down. It, that's my experience of it. I think that's true of a lot of people in this last year. I've read articles about it. I mean, it's very hard. Unless you have a, a support group and a community that that helps you, you know, feel connected. And Zoom connection once a week or twice a week is just not the same. It's not the same for me. Maybe it works for other people. I know it hasn't worked for other millions of other people have said it's not the same. Um, and that just didn't do it for me. And so it's 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 very hard to be creative, to be, you know, per, to me, me, pursuing meaning suggests a certain kind of creativity and feeling, feeling agency and feeling meaningful. But without the witnessing, without the, the, the connection to others, uh, I find it very difficult to feel any of those things, anything except nothing, you know, like a kind of a despair, like a low-level despair, which is not a great environment to seek out meaning. And, I mean, because for me, here's the other thing. What do you find meaningful? For me, meaning has always been associated with other people, with with working with kids or with reaching out to others. I mean, I used to find a lot, for, for decades, I found meaning in sitting in, in a coffee shop, working on my computer, writing something, and having conversations with random strangers. That felt very meaningful. And, and talking to somebody about their story and listening to somebody who's not used to having somebody listen to them. And, you know just being there, whether it was offering advice or just talking, that connection f always felt so powerful to me. And it was such a kind of a core part of my experience in the world. And it was just gone. One day it was there and literally one day, the next day it was just gone. And it's been gone for 13 months. It hasn't come back. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to replace. Again, random, you can't, ra I mean, you can, I guess, but I've I've tried it, and I, it's just not the same. Random meetings with strangers on Zoom is a very different experience than sitting somebody somewhere, making eye contact with somebody, or standing at a counter and having a, starting up a conversation, and then continuing that when you sit down. Because something that happens in a room between people is very human. Chemi you want to call it chemistry or connection or whatever the language you want to apply to it. It's a very human experience that doesn't exist through the computer. It exists in some way. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's much harder to start from scratch through a computer. You, if you know somebody already and you can be on a computer with them, there's there's meaning in that. But to start from zero on a computer, I, I think because so much of human interaction is is body language and 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 you know nonverbal communication. We all know this, and nonverbal communication with people you already know can exist on a computer. But with people you don't yet haven't yet built those pathways with, it's just not there. Mm -hmm. Which is a huge, I would argue, is a huge, not an insignificant, but a huge part of human interaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, those are called mirror neurons. Yeah. I mean, if I if this were 20 years ago and I were where you are and had my daughter and we had a little child that I could talk to or a wife, and we were having a daily interaction, I would be in, I would feel completely have a completely different experience, I think, mm -hmm. of this pandemic than being completely alone. I have people I know in this town, but it's not the same thing. I, I only know them from recent times, and I don't know them very well. So that creates a different kind of experience of that. What's, what's, um, what's your experience of happiness been like in the last year versus previous years? Has there been a difference in the pandemic, or for you, there hasn't been a difference? I'm thinking, you know, my, I, I, my first instinct was to say there hasn't been a huge difference in my happiness um, and it's in large part because I have a, my family with me so all right fuck you yeah that's all you got that's that's it you know i appreciate that you take 10 minutes to think about something and then you give me like a two word answer but you know we're on a podcast I, I just know. don't. I know you know people can't see us I we're not know. filming the I podcast know, I, I we know. can see you each remind other. me that every week 
Well, because it's helpful because sometimes, most of the time, I think like you forget. Yeah, no, I mean I, it's fine I, I, no, if nobody listens to our podcast. podcast. Yeah, we are <laughs> but, on a podcast. I mean, this is a meaningful thing for us to just have these conversations with each other, whether anybody's listening or not. That's absolutely true. But if you want other people to be interested, you know, you gotta you gotta have some skin in that game. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the, the nature of resilience, and I'm, I'm, mm. I mean, the things that I'm thoughtful about are, you know, well, okay, you know, I, I, I was wondering about, well, if someone came into your to sit with you and talk about and said the things that you say about their own life, and you wanted to mm-hmm. be helpful to them, um, and they couldn't, you know, if 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 one of the major ways that they found meaning was in in person communication and that's the mm-hmm. one thing that was taken away and they had a year ahead of them and they said there's nothing meaningful in my life what would you say how do you i would say you do you have that? a gu- do you have a gun and two bullets yeah that wouldn't be helpful <laughs> you know it depends on your definition of helpful wouldn't it? and what is the second bullet for by the way just <laughs> curiosity like if you're gonna the, kill yourself what's the second bullet for well you you assume that the first one <laughs> took a lot of people that's fuck funny. that up. You, that's that's harder to do than you think it is, actually. You don't hear a lot of stories of people shooting themselves in the head and then doing it again. You don't hear that. Well, how many stories <laughs> of people shooting themselves do you hear? That's actually a harder thing to, to, to I, get right than you I, think it is. I read a lot more online than you do. A lot more articles, a lot more About people sites. shooting themselves in the head? Well, it's a daily occurrence in the pandemic. A lot of people can kill. I mean, suicide, by the way, for men in our age group, has been on the rise for about a decade. Like, dramatic rise. Why do you think that is? I think it ties exactly into the conversation about happiness and meaning. And what we've been taught to take up as happiness is problematic because people can't don't get it. They don't live up to it. It doesn't it doesn't hit them in the way it's supposed to. They've been doing things they thought were going to make them happy based on what they've been taught and they don't make them happy because they're not meaningful. I think that's the experience. I mean, that's a lot of the stories in the notes if you look at people's suicide notes. I mean, I think that's part of, part of the issue, I think, is this happiness culture, is this notion of, you know, what it means to be happy and the pursuit of happiness in this very narrow, limited, modern context. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to purpose. It doesn't lead to the richer 18th century definition of happiness. That's what sui- That's why the suicide connection. Because, they're, well, I, I mean, I, I like all the things that you're saying. You know, I think that especially when in, in tying them in over the past decade as social media has become more and more entrenched and people are trying to live up to some standard that they see set before them, which, as we talked about in an earlier episode, isn't even mm-hmm. real to begin with. That's something that that's people right. want you to perceive about them, which, you know, may or may not and probably isn't uh, particularly real, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that, well, that's what that's what happiness is supposed to look like, right? And then I'm making up a story about that person and their happiness, and I think that's right. what my life is supposed to look like, even though you don't really know anything about what anything that person's life is like. Or who's um, paying them to make their life look that way also, by the right. way. You know, and therefore, since it is not that, and I, I don't seem to feel what that person seems to feel, I must not be happy. Um, right. But then the question is, you know, but, you know, does, can someone be happy simply by, you know, saying, well, start paying more attention to this and see if that makes you happy. Maybe they don't even know what happy is. Right. Well, I think that's part of the problem, right? I mean, what the way we learn, it's the, it's it's analogous to so many things. Like the way we're taught to be men, right? Is doesn't lead us, I think, to a lot of satisfaction or fulfillment culturally. The way we're taught to be happy, I mean, it's an interesting thing like to to look at how we educate children in this culture. It just makes me think of this all the time. Like if you were designing an education system from scratch, whose goal let's say, in the purpose of this conversation, was to create human beings who felt meaningful and connected and and thus happy by that definition of connection, purpose, and meaning is happy. What would you teach in kindergarten? What would you teach in preschool? What subjects? What values? How would you, how would you create a different kind of educational system? Go ahead and answer the question in very great detail right now. You know, I think that there are, if, if this is such a, th- it's, it's very thorny what you're talking about. Of course. And, and you know a lot more about the educational system than I do. Um, you know, I- Although you Dal- have a seven-year-old. Dal- yeah, but Dal- and Dahlia has had teachers that I think emphasize a lot of the things that I think are important, like 
sharing, kindness, like all of the stuff that you're supposed to be teaching kids, I wouldn't take that stuff out. You mm-hmm. know? Right. What would you add though? Like, what would you teach that's meaningful to young kids that aren't that isn't taught now? Do you have an idea? Like, does anything would, come I, to there, mind? There would be a lot more playtime than there is. That that's a that's actually a real problem. Is there'd be a lot more playtime. There should be a lot more playtime. We we have we have become or devolved into a society that puts more and more and more emphasis on um, test scores and preparedness for the for the for the for the future grade and for future learning mm, and, facts and facts and and uh, achievement. And there is abundant evidence. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. There's abundant evidence that play actually improves kids' learning experiences. Not, you know, taking less, taking time away from play, giving them more things to do and study doesn't actually help. It does the opposite. Right. Because what does play teach children? Why is it helpful? Because it sparks imagination and creativity and sharing and all of the kinds of things and cooperation and um, human connection. You know, there are... uh, all of the things that we're talking about. So, so the the simple right. answer to your question is: if I were going to change, I wouldn't necessarily t- throw everything out. I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah no, I wasn't suggesting you to throw water, everything out. No, but no. But I would absolutely. I would rather see kids stay in school an extra year, a year longer, and tack on more playtime mm-hmm. uh, and free time. Yeah, I think that's a really meaningful. I think that's a great idea. I would completely agree with that. Um, I also think, though, in terms of like what we teach children, I, I don't think we talk at all about the meaning of connection and relationship and the kind of fundamental value, it, it, the fundamental need Amer- uh, Americans, uh, humans have. Like uh, To me, that's like the most fundamental human need is connection, is relationship. Right. I, well, I think you're right. I think you're spot on. The problem is yeah. that... Who decides what connect, what connection and relationship is supposed to look like? How you actually perform that? How you do that? Well, because it's a, lot, a reasonable so, question. So a lot of kids grow up in homes where they have no good example of relationship. That's correct, right? And then they, as model, they they do what's modeled for them. And unless they have any kind of experience where they learn something different, then they, then this just gets perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated. And it's why there's such a high divorce rate. Like, yeah, you know, we just, we don't teach that. We don't teach how to be in relationship. Right. But I would, I would argue, how is that any different than math or science or history? Like who decides somebody some group decides how we teach history. Now, you and I, we may disagree with a particular version. A lot of people do. We have different sides of this equation. But at least we're teaching an idea that history is meaningful. And I think in relationship, yeah, we may have different ideas about what makes a healthy relationship. Although, I think, again, like in a macro way, we could teach kids about relationship from, you know, from the the values place of like curiosity and compassion and kindness. And like, I think we could have a kind of a, a shared curriculum that wouldn't be, you know, much different than again, the differences we have on any other subject, but it would be seen and taught as a value to young children. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that think that have such a negative, I mean, in like history, like there are a lot of people now who want to teach that slavery was a good thing. Like, that I think is bad, okay? I think you and I both would agree. That's a bad way to teach history, right? Thinking, well, slavery was good. It was a good thing. Now, in the context of the time, we can, we can teach slavery and understand why people, the rationales people gave at the time, and we can put it in the context, but it doesn't make it good. It just makes it something that we understand. Right, but you can't so in terms teach of, that slavery existed. You can teach that's right. the facts of, of history. right. So I'm saying in terms of relationship, I think we there is a there is kind of a shared idea of certain values around relationship. And there are many books and just like any school districts chooses the books they use to teach any subject, I think relationship should be a subject taught from the beginning of school to the end. I just think that's we don't it's it's the most important value as a human being, I think. The value of relationship—it's the gives the most meaning and the most power and the most joy and the most 
and I think it's required. You're not going to get an argument from me. Everything no, no. I talk I'm, about my clients is about is everything's relationship. But I, but I think your critique of it is misplaced in the sense that, like, this is true of any subject. Well, who gets to decide? Well, whoever gets to decide gets to decide. I still think we should teach it. Well, fair enough. Whoever gets to decide gets to decide. In any subject. Yeah, except that I, what, if, what if the person who gets, or people who get to decide don't think about it the way you think about it? Well, and they're, and they're this is true now. And they're teaching, but, no, no, in, in their teaching relationship. And you're saying, but well, is, but at least but they're teaching is, relationship. No, no, but this is true now, though. My point is, this is true in history, and this is true in math and science. There are things I don't agree with. So there's two, there's two ways to go. One, we send our kids to different schools, and we make that choice available to everybody, regardless of economic situation, which I think should, we should be doing now anyway. And two, we, we you know, just like in any other aspect of society, we, we gravitate toward people who tend to think like we think. That's who our friends are. We should have shared values. I just think the idea of talking about relationship should be something that we talk about in school at the earliest ages. I could could not agree with you more. I mean, you're also talking about a fairly utopian idea of, well, you choose a different school and everybody has the same amount. Of, well, I'm, I'm you know, not saying that's possible are for everybody. The same and all, and, you know, and it's no, no. I'm to- not saying I'm not saying that at all. Actually, I'm saying given the circumstances that we're in now, this is true of every subject, and so. We still should add. Th- we still should be talking about things that are meaningful, as opposed to the bullshit. Like, so I think we should add relationship as part of the thing. When we talk about sharing and all those things, that's 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 under relationship, but it's not given a frame that says this is why relationships are the most imp- you know the most important frame for our lives. I would love it. I would love it if they were all, if they taught relationship every year. And by the way, I, th- I, think, I think they ought to teach financial responsibility as well. Well, which they never. That's do. true. I, I don't disagree with that either. But in terms of but in terms of uh, happiness, the conversation that we've been having today. I think the happiness of the, the, the framers, the, the pursuit of a virtue, not of a piece of chocolate or an episode, but the pursuit of a virtue that provides meaning and purpose, relationship is at the core of that. Without re- Relationship is, the, it, in many ways you could argue, meaningful relationship is a much health, better definition of happiness than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, well, and you're making me thoughtful of the. Th- I think did we talk about this um, Darwinian idea of of uh, survival of the fittest? Did I bring that up in another conversation? I'm we had? I'm pretty sure that's come up. Okay, then I won't bring it up again. Well, you can bring it up briefly, just to, to apply it to the conversation. Well, today again, in the I mean, way you want well, to. Well, again, I mean this this goes to this I, the, how ideas have have changed. Um, mm. And what did people mean when they first said them? I'm trying to kind of tie together a few different ideas that have come up in today's mm. conversation. Um, one of them is that, um, especially in the West and especially in this country, uh, the, the idea that we're supposed to do everything by ourselves, being an individual, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Absolutely. Uh, you don't need anybody else. And if you do, then something's wrong with you. Right. Um, you know, Darwin, when he said survival of the fittest, he didn't mean that. It's not what he meant. He didn't mean the biggest, baddest person uh, survives or animal survives. He mm-hmm. meant the, per- the those who are who procreate survive. He, he meant mm-hmm. really what he meant was it's the it's survival of the most connected. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the survival of the most relationally connected that survive. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's. That's who survives. Yeah, put that on a bumper sticker, though. You know, the, I mean, we live in a bumper sticker culture. You know, it's incredibly stressful to be the biggest, baddest motherfucker out there, constantly. Um, yeah. You know, trying to hold that position. You know, it's the ones who are procreating and connecting and having community and stay with the herd. Like those are the ones who survive. Right. To use a sports analogy, because this is what people love, you know, in golf, the person who gets out to a big lead often has a hard time holding it because they get complacent or they they start to, it gets in their head, I'm in the lead, and people chasing are just chasing. So they have a much, usually a much easier road than the person holding it. Um, It feels similar to that idea. I think that's a way to understand it. It's very hard to be at the top because you're, the only place to go is down. In the way we conceptualize all of that now, mm-hmm. you know, the only way to go is down. And so I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, language is language and context is so meaningful. And I wish that we would have deeper conversations about the things we talk about in our culture and our politics and other things as opposed to these kind of ridiculous 
you know, either or, or taking somebody's three words out of context and then demonizing them 100%. I hate that. You know, I mean, it's, you know. I didn't demonize you 100%. Well, you you said I I wanted to cut off people's meat source and didn't want to provide people with hamburgers. You said demonize 100%. (laughs) I was thinking about the Republican position on Joe Biden and meat. Why would you say I did that? Because I was thinking about the Republican positions on Joe Biden and meat. It just mm. came into my head because I was reading an article about it yeah. the other day. Um, I'm a huge fan of hamburgers, by the way. You know that. Yeah. You know, um, it's a really overrated hamburger is... Uh, in and in out. And out. Yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't agree with... I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I um, I think in and out hamburgers are overrated. I think when you put the cheese and the sauce and everything in the bun and in the context, I think it's fun. But I don't think their food is as brilliant as other people do. I think Shake Shack, in terms of chains, of is a much better burger, and their bun is much better. Let me just, let me just say this too: you could put cheese and sauce and a bun around, you know, pretty much anything, and it would be good. Most things, mostly. Well, you know, I don't know if you remember when we were growing up. I used to say you could put anything in puff pastry, and it would be good. Like puff yes, pastry made yes. anything. I would even in those days, I would even have eaten a vegetable in a puff pastry. Yeah, yeah which I didn't eat for the first 40 years of my life. I really didn't eat green vegetables. That's true. That's not made up or hyperbole. Yeah, what's, I did what's eat cream spinach at Lowry's. Is, is, it's not good. It's upsetting. Yeah. It's not good. Um, but that cream spinach from Lowry's, mm-hmm. that was that was my yeah, main that was really uh, vegetable like, source yeah, really as a child. <laughs> well, it had it had all the qualities of a vegetable. It had yeah. bacon. Yeah. It had cream. Oh, my God. It, what made, else do you want in your vegetables? We made, we made a, 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 a homemade... Homemade pasta with uh, mushrooms and pancetta. And oh, was, that sounds good. Oh, my God. It was so incredible. I had that last night. Amazing. Eat, eat, what kind of mushroom? Did you use a porcini? Oh, uh, we, we did. We used shiitake and I think creamini. We, we mixed them together. Mm. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's no mushroom like the porcini. It's a great mushroom, yeah. It's the Cadillac of mushrooms. It's a great mushroom. <laughs> it's the Cadillac of mushrooms. Do you remember that Mike, uh, not my cousin Vinny, what was the movie that John Travolta and Danny DeVito, um, Get Shorty. Mm. Do you remember that movie? Did I, you see, you I didn't remember, see that? I, did, I remember seeing it. I remember liking it. It's a very fun movie. It's one of those, it's like a Steven Soderbergh fun. Mm. I don't even know if he directed, but it feels like he did because it's got that vibey, mm-hmm. music-y, mm-hmm. fun movement kind of thing. Um, and at one point, John Travolta, whose character who plays like the kind of this hitman, this mafia guy, and Danny DeVito is this like, you know, show business asshole. And, and uh, John Travolta shows up driving a minivan because that's what he rented from the place. And he says to Danny DeVito, looks at the car and he's like, he says, it's the Cadillac of minivans. And the next scene, like Danny DeVito is driving up in the same car. You know, the Cadillac of minivans. Just, I just love that phrase, the Cadillac of. That used to be a meaningful phrase in America. The Cadillac which ironic, of was thought of which as is, the Which is gold ironic standard. because I don't think Cadillac actually makes a minivan. And it's a car no. company. So, and that's the one context. It's even funnier. Yeah. 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 It's even funnier in that context because right. the Cadillac of minivans is, is amusing. Because yeah. the know. Cadillac of minivans would be a Cadillac. Yeah. Although Cadillac, you know, in the old days, Cadillac made those huge, big cars that were like the the measure of success in America. Elvis Presley owned like, you know, like 27 Cadillacs. That was one of those. Do you remember those little those short convertible Cadillacs? They were incredibly ugly. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. When they tried to make a car for the masses. And it was like, that, yeah, it was a very square. It looked like a yeah. little, very rectangular. It was a yeah, it was, a, so it was, ugly, it was one of those ridiculous, like, let's turn a luxury brand into a mass brand. And it never works oh, out. Do you remember New Coke? There you go. Enough said. Have you watched any of the Netflix shows? There's been a lot of shows this year, not just Netflix, and, and I think HBO and a couple about space and space like and going to Mars. There's been a couple like series about going to Mars, a couple different ones. No, Have you watched I don't, any I don't of those? Know. Why, does it, why is everybody so gung ho about going to Mars? <laughs> We're explorers. That sounds awful. Didn't you me. watch Moana? Didn't it you see awful. Moana? Have you seen Mars? The basic premise of Moana was. We're explorers. I love Moana. It was a gr- it's a great movie. I love Do you remember it. when the grandmother says, we're explorers? When she finds oh, yeah, the hidden... That. I remember yeah. that. But we're you explorers. know what they were exploring? Earth. They were exploring Earth. Yeah, but that was a pre-industrialized society. This is a great society. Have you seen pictures of Mars? It, Mar- it's... It's very red. Oh, it's, it's like a whole other planet. It's just... Yeah. It's, like, it's like that line Charlie Fleischer said. He said, uh, you know, I went to France the other day, and it's, it's like they have a different word over there for everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god that's funny charlie fleischer is he dead i don't know one of the funniest comedians of my childhood had that big uh, curly hair and uh, rapier wit 
What was your What was your favorite movie as a child? I don't know, Silver Streak, maybe. Hmm. Richard Pryor. Well, that's a button on the whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Go back to it. good, good move there, Richard Pryor. He, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Didn't they make a couple of movies? What was the other one? The Silver Streak. They, yeah, Silver they Streak, were like the buddy uh, picture some, duo. Something with the word "run" in it, right? Um, no. Uh huh. Something with the. Maybe you're thinking now of the Charles Grodin, Robert De Niro movie. Midnight Run. Now. Um, I don't. That's a Midnight Run. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying that's that was that's, a good movie yeah. too. By the way, that was a good movie. You but know, Richard also Pryor a movie called "My Name Is Nobody." With Terrence Hill. It's a very obscure movie. I love. I have a vague, a vague memory of that. I don't know what it has to do with Richard Pryor and uh, Gene Wilder. Uh, no, it was, my fa- when he was one of my favorite movies. Oh, favorite movies. Okay. And, and, you know, the Pink Panther movies were... Oh, I Peter Sellers was, was so kid. funny. What was your favorite Being movie? there. I, I mean, you know, it's I mean, funny. I think, well, obviously I, I, it was The Godfather, Billy, but... Billy Jack. <laughs> Billy Jack was not a good movie, but there are a few very amusing scenes in it. No, there's no, there's no greater film ever made. And I think this is... I know... I know as a culture, we believe this true because you can watch TV shows or movies made today and people are still talking about The Godfather in other TV shows and movies today. This is a movie that was made 40, came out well, 49 years kid, ago. When I was a kid, I was talking about like when I was 10. Is that when The Godfather was your favorite movie when you were 10? Well, when I was from, I would say from 7 to 18, The Godfather was my from favorite seven movie. 7 years old, that was your favorite movie. Well, that's when my dad took me to see it. Don't you remember that? So inappropriate. <laughs> I was a little young for the uh, murder and oh, you know culture God. of the Godfather, so but you know what else you learn about from the Godfather? Family. Yeah, they they, they kill Fredo. I mean, sure, there's they, a lot of killing. They kill Fredo. Let me say this to you: if you that's Godfather two, and that came out two years later, so I was nine. He did. He did. But let he me say this: speak, he did speak against the family. Let me say this to you: if you watch both Godfather movies and you just take out all the crime. It's a beautiful story of a family. You know, if you watch both <laughs> Godfather movies and you take out all the crime, it's like a 43-second movie. Um, those, that's six hours worth of movie viewing. My Six hours and 15 minutes worth of mo- movie viewing, my friend. There's a lot more in it. Some, some of those scenes, I mean, some of those scenes in Godfather 2 and in, in Sicily, just, just exquisitely beautiful. The cinematography, and the, I can't remember the guy's name that Coppola worked with. You, do you know? You're a film guy. Yeah. That uh, guy who did the cinematography in Godfather 1 and 2 was a genius. I've forgotten who that was. I mean, literally everything about those movies, whether it was intentional or accidental or luck, I mean, a lot of things go into making movies, you know, especially when you're young. I was with you when you saw, well, we both saw, but for you it was a big deal. For me, it didn't matter. Magic Johnson at Carney's. Oh, at Carney's, yeah. That was, God, God, that was like, we were like 16, I think. Oh, that was like God. 1981. You were, that you were really starstruck. Well, I was into sports in those days, and the Lakers in particular. And Magic was the savior of LA sports. I mean, he was he was amazing. You know what I remember most from that? I don't know if you remember this, but he was sitting at a table, but he couldn't sit at the table because his knees, when his feet were on the ground, his knee was like a foot above the table. I still remember the image. He was wearing jeans, and his knee, like his legs were so long. He was six feet, eight inches tall. He probably still is, maybe. We shrink as we get older, so maybe he's like six, seven and a half now. But he and he was very thin in those days. Now he's much stockier, but he was so thin. And I remember his legs. I remember I can still see them in my head. I see the huge smile, that amazing like smile that made everybody love magic. But his his knee, his leg forwards on the ground, and his knee was like a foot above where the table was. Yeah. <laughs> it was he was so tall. Yeah. Yeah, he was very, was very tall. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you that the, the food I missed the most from Los Angeles is the chili fries from Carney's? That, that is, they were a little greasy, like my, though. They were a little greasy, but you like that. Well, they were a lot greasy. The chili, that, I mean, they the were chili orange. is a very greasy. Yeah, right. The chili is a very yeah, greasy that, chili. It's very greasy. It's, it is a very greasy chili. It's also an incredibly tasty chili, I would argue. Greasy, true. Tasty, absolutely. Yeah, not a lot of meat in the chili in that chili. There was some meat. I do remember meat in that chili. I think something that looks like meat. I, I don't know if it was or what kind of meat. Let me it just was. say this: the cheese and the and the fries and the chili were just a particular wonderful taste oh, yeah. together. Just like fat and salt and carbohydrates. It's fantastic. It was not to like. Right, but you can put lots of different kinds of fat and salt and carbohydrates together and not come up with Carney's fries. Carney's fries would were like six hundred thousand times better. Than in and out fries. 600,000 times At least 600,000 times better. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Carney's only has two places. I think, I don't know if they're That's still the open. That's the most indisputable pandemic. thing you've ever said. <laughs> the, is it the most, the most indisputable thing I ever said? Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Not that Talia Shire was a member of a crime family. That's completely disputable. Yes, well said. Talia Shire. She was also in Rocky. Forget, like, she was in some of the most iconic films of the 20th century. Yeah, she was. I think I think people forget Talia Shire when they talk about, like, the great actresses of the 20th century. But but if you take the role of Connie Corleone in those films and the and the role of Adrian in Rocky, just those two, those two performances, I would argue, are brilliant performances. I don't even remember if she was nominated for Oscars for them. She was great in Rocky. She was incredible in Rocky. That transformation that she went through in that film felt very authentic, and she played it beautifully. Yeah, enough said. Um, you know what I was thinking also the other day? Like we never introduce ourselves on this podcast. We don't say the name of the podcast. We don't say our names. And like from my way of thinking, it's because like my thinking about that was I wanted the podcast to be like somebody just like dropped into the middle of a conversation we were having. So like you don't just introduce yourself in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, I think you've succeeded. If that was your if that was your aim, I think you've done it. <laughs> Maybe we should start introducing ourselves. I don't know. I'm Joshua Beckett. Wait a minute, you had me do that. We had a whole thing where you had me because I say it again. I know. Say it again. Say it different. But I do. But that. every I time like I five, play that, like, like fifty times. I know. You know what the problem with that is? What? It all sounds so fake. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing authentic and natural and conversational about it. It sounds right, made well, up. Let's sign off. I'm, this has been Joshua Beckett. I'm Joshua Beckett, and and I'm and I'm Irving Berlin. That sounded so <laughs> fake. Well, because I'm not Irving Berlin. Oh, that's, that's why. why that's why it's fake. fake. Um, I think we should start from now on in the beginning of the podcast and say, "Hi, I'm Kenny Benjamin." How about if I say, "I'm uh, I'm here with Kenny Benjamin," and you say, "You're you're here with me." Or you could just say, you could just start, I'm here with Kenny Benjamin and just leave it at that. <laughs> and then you could be just the mystery man, yeah. like the, just an aura of mystery okay. about you. All right, let's do that. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com.